Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Okay, preparing to stream live. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. No idea what that is, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Could be 4.30 a.m., could be 6.30 a.m., I don't know, sorry. This value after hours, I'm Tobias Carl. I got Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster with me as always. What's happening, fellas? Good to uh, be here. Invasions. Invasion, yeah. Markets in turmoil, not yet. Scary stuff. I don't know. Is that true? Invasions. We got social unrest to the north of, of us. There's some stuff going on, huh? Yeah, there is a little bit of stuff. It's interesting again. Uh, we got Scotland in the house, Nashville. Nice. Where are they all from? <laughs> What's up today? I don't even know. I haven't looked. Uranium. What's, what's up, dog? I don't know. <laughs> Toronto. Uranium's always Ooh. supposed to be up. Saskatchewan. All right. Yeah, I got a. We got for today. My topic is because there's a. My topic is Russia. Bull Russia is my topic. Um, and then I got another one on. Uh, Robico has a piece that called "Human Instincts Drive Value Premium," and there's a good quote in there from Andrew Lowe in his book "Adaptive Markets." So, mm. um, we'll talk about that. Billy, what you got? Uh, I guess we'll revisit this Facebook thing. We'll see if we have anything left to say on it. Uh, and I don't know. We some blood out of that turnip. What about what else? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, I mean, we had Daily Journal. We could talk some of that. Yeah. I like, do you have uh, nothing but net materials? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I figured, you know, revenue growth is what you want. All right. That's, uh, that's the key. I did, which I, I do I think I skimmed is part the book of the this weekend so that I won't be totally talking out of my rear end. So, did you skim it? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. What do you got, JT? Uh, you know, I've, I know how popular the animal segments are on this program, <laughs> people complaining that I don't do enough about sperm whales. So, uh, I figured I'd do, do one for the fans and, uh, this one is going to be about camels. So strap one in. Hump or two. We'll get into that. All right. Uh, I think, should we kick it off with the Facebook discussion since I've, yeah. I've had, I've had people. Are you sure you're open-minded enough to tackle this? Yeah, I, I, evidently I'm too <laughs> close-minded to hear the Facebook discussion. So let's uh, let's go. Let's. My mind is open. It's relaxed. No, and- I mean it's like the third time we've sort of talked about it now. But uh, you know, I just think it's. I think that whether or not uh, short-form video inherently impacts what that uh, platform's supposed to be, I think is an interesting question. Um, like you know, you you're getting. Not all that long ago, Zuckerberg said he wanted to lean into communities. He wants it to be social. The inherent nature of short form video, I think if you watch TikTok or something, it's like much, much closer to television media than some social uh, mm. media company. And if you talk to advertisers- Why is that? Because it scrolls past more quickly? Yeah, I just think you're just like looking for, I don't know, whatever it is you're, you're looking not, for. You're not looking at you're not looking at your friends. You're looking at whatever is the most popular thing on the on the app at any given time. Yeah, right. So it's not like uh, there's nothing inherently social about it. I don't think it's just like trying to find the next viral thing on the virality. Internet. Yeah. Um, and then you know, according to some advertisers that I've talked to, stories uh, do not monetize like newsfeed did, and because people tend to just like click through and um, you know, you introduce video to it. I don't know, does Facebook become closer to YouTube and then you're reducing ad load and then you're pushing out duration. And I think everybody's always worried about the duration. And then you layer on $10 billion of meta spend uh, that, you know, I think there's a legitimate question. Zuckerberg was objectively excellent at executing, creating social. He was very good at executing defensive acquisitions. 
Um, Mobile transition. That was pretty good. Yeah. Has he been, is it, is he demonstrably successful creating a new category like the metaverse? I, I think it requires a lot of faith. So, yeah, that's a big leap. Yeah. So, ten, you know, I mean, I don't know. Dollars, cheap, maybe that's as good as money, sir. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I think you can say, well, you just MPV that and then, uh, you know, who cares? Even write it down to zero. It doesn't matter. But then you've got the founder of a company that has bet the company future, uh, at least from a how do you get people motivated on sort of a you know, his own dream. And I think he deserves to, it's much in the same way that Munger can do whatever the hell he wants in daily journal. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg can do whatever the hell he wants in Facebook, but um, I just am much less convinced that uh, it's, you know, I, I think the market reaction is not unjustified is basically my takeaway. Uh, the risk you know, to it is that it ends up being like, MySpace or something like that, right? Like no one just no one goes there anymore. And then once 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 it sort of loses that, then it doesn't come back. It seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I there's no evidence that I have seen in data that I actually trust that uh, supports the claim that people don't go anymore. Um, Even to the blue, yeah. Per per user data is quite strong. Um, now, you know, how does that shift? Like, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure app Annie measures us iOS usage. So, um, you know, I, I think what people do and what they say they do are different things. Uh, I think that there's a lot of reasons to go onto Facebook still, but if, if you're no longer looking at the newsfeed and you're interacting in a different way, like instead you're going to the marketplace or, like he really wanted to build out communities. Communities was this, uh, you know, idea that that Zuck had, and you know now people are just going to like when I go to Instagram, I scroll short form video. I watch videos of like Broncos and shit, and then people playing golf, and no one that I really know. I don't scroll the feed. You mean Broncos like know. the Ford Bronco or the Denver yeah, like Broncos the or okay. no? I like the new Bronco. Gotcha. Ford Bronco world. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I don't have a strong, I think Zuckerberg has had, he's managed periods in the past where the stock has gotten sold off. He's uh, invested in the business in the past and come out on the other side. Um, but now he's, you know, going against what Apple, a Apple objectively, I think hurt their position. I think you see it in Shopify's numbers a little bit. Uh, Google is doing something similar and you got the metaverse. Like I, I, I don't have a strong view if I did other, you know, I thought it was cheap before I own it. Uh, my man, Chris Cerrone says, uh, sell when management or the business ceases to be exceptional. Uh, I'm not sure if Facebook is, it's, it's certainly above average. Um, you know, is exceptional to above average a reason to sell? I don't know. It might be. The, but I, I just don't. I, I'm I'm reticent to say it's cheaper now than it was. The uh, there's other stuff in there though, like that. Tim Kavanagh's got a comment here: FB marketplace crushes, but they don't make any money off the transactions, just eyeballs on the site. Don't go, don't make any money on local transactions. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a time. I mean, you got WhatsApp is under monetized. You got like it, I, I guess that. I see why it's cheap. I mean, I owned it going into the print. Um, but I think that there's real questions. And I and I I do think that some of the difference between where Apple was priced and how this is priced is I'm not sure that Apple came out and said, We're we have the iPhone cash cow, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna take heap like tons and tons and tons of money and resources on this tangential product that has perceptually nothing to do with our core business because we don't want to be beholden to a platform in the future. Uh, you know, that's kind of a, I understand why the market thinks it's a weak position to be in. I think that the, that the, the disconnect that we had last week, the difference between what you're saying is you're talking about the business and the current problems that it have. And I'm talking about, you know, I'm looking quantitatively at the valuation 
objectively right now there is a there is a massive disconnect between what facebook has done historically and where the stock is trading right now and it doesn't necessarily mean it's undervalued it may be that that stock price accurately reflects reflects the future for facebook and that there is going to be this pretty substantial deterioration of the fundamentals that's entirely possible it's just that i think that they've got a lot of runway zuckerberg's pretty smart it's still a pretty high quality business they're making lots of money um, relative to what they have invested in that business and incrementally i get that metaverse is a totally different direction i think it's i think it's it's because there's a there's a difference between the, where the stock price is and where the fundamentals are right now, it's worth taking a bet on. I don't have a position in it, and I, I can't say whether I will or not in the future. But because that's a decision that has to be made, yet I haven't made it. But it's I think it's an I think it's a very interesting uh, position where it is. It's a very interesting opportunity, rather. Would you say yeah, that if you could, could be you could bet thirty of those that were kind of not all correlated that you'd be pretty happy. Yeah, that's that's the sort of approach that I'm taking. I, I want to have a portfolio of them. I'm less I'm less interested in what any individual one of them does. So they're they're smaller positions for me too. Yeah, and look, I mean, some of my frustration in the conversation is I spend most of my day trying to figure these things out by calling people and talking to people. And you said, well, this is like macro; you can't figure it out. So you basically said, what I do is a waste of my time. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds bad. I didn't mean it that way. Let's. Um, it is a little bit germane to the to the next point that I have though. From this is the Robico piece. So they have this great line here. This is Andrew Lowe in Adaptive Markets. Robico's quoting him. He says, "Intelligence he's like a professor from MIT, right?" Is that? He's also I forget whether he's a where he's a partner. He was a I think he was um, he was either research affiliates or something like that. I'm, I I might be wrong about that. I just all right. That's fine. I need to go and look that up. I, I, he was he was only mentioned in the paper. He's not he's not uh, the subject of the paper. But the the quote is great. Intelligence is the ability to generate accurate cause and effect descriptions of reality. And so I, I wish that he hadn't used the word intelligence there. But I, I like the the idea that you know the what, what you're trying to do is generate these accurate cause and effect um, descriptions of what reality is. Right. And so we're going about it in slightly different ways. You're calling a lot of people and I'm, I'm trying to take an outside statistical view of what happens. The, the risk I always think is if you get too close to these businesses, the narrative, um, like you can develop a narrative and it, it either makes you like the business more than you would otherwise like them or you feel like you know it and so you're in it and you feel like you know it a little bit better. I just fade my own ability to sort of make decisions on that basis so i tend to be i tend to be outside yeah i mean i look i've said that i may index i i like i think that people think i'm like throwing in the towel or something when i say that i'm not i am respecting like one of the things that doing podcasting in general has done is it has opened my network to have discussions that i otherwise would not have and when I have had those discussions, I've found out, holy shit, I don't actually know that much. So like part of why I'm considering doing things like indexing is I accept that I have my own limitations. Uh, and, and that's part of my answer. And part of the reason that I'm somewhat okay with that is you're insured of catching the really big winners. Now, like in my view, one of the problems that the index may have is that today's winners may be overvalued relative to the future. But, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting hearing uh, Charlie talk about at the Daily Journal that, like, he doesn't necessarily think that rates are going to go up as a result of monetary policy. And he pointed to Japan. And, like, I, I kind of think that the real manifestation of risk is in political risk. And I think it's massively underpriced. But I, I don't, I'm not convinced that interest rates are how the risk manifests itself. Now, maybe you could say, well, if political risk, you know, if we go into civil war, like the rate should go up. Like, yes, agree. Um, but I just, I, I don't know. I've, uh, you know, it's hard to, to think for myself and to watch people that I respect call for rates to go up for 15 to 20 years. And they were wrong. And I was wrong every single time. And the more money that's come out, the more rates have gone down. And part of me wonders if it's because interest rates are really just pricing the value of money. And if you flood the system with money, then shouldn't rates go down? Like, 
because you've got a whole bunch more capital chasing fewer things. Uh, I think people have been calling for higher rates have been calling for higher rates in the sense that they think we should like when I say higher rates, I mean, I think we should have higher rates. I think it's a bad thing for society, for business to have rates this low. So when I say I think that they when I call for higher rates, I think that they should be higher. Not that I necessarily think that they will be higher. Like what the Fed does, the Fed has no connection to reality as far as I can see. The Fed just makes decisions based on, I, I have no idea what they, they make, what they're looking at when they make the decisions. Like the amount of money that's being printed at the moment with a white hot housing market and the stock market where it is make, makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. You mean they so, shouldn't be buying mortgage-backed securities still when houses are at... <laughs> 30 40 percent above last year it does seem a little bit crazy well so when you put I, it I, that way but then if you look you know if you look globally like there's a lot of negative rates so like where do i think interest rates could go like i think they could who knows they could be anywhere from negative to like positive so i've got no idea i've got like directionally zero idea yeah i mean i agree charlie charlie seemed to allude to the same yeah, let's I do think it. he was, you know, probably, I, well, I don't think probably, I, I think his comments on Japan being able to manage a situation where there's uh, some tough times is probably better because they're a homogenous group of people and we are not. Uh, I think that that's fairly accurate. Certainly what I would, that would be my standing hypothesis. Yeah. What, uh, what did you think of the... Uh of the of the call i watched it all the way through he's fucking awesome man 98 to be able to get up and do what he does like that's incredible he's yeah. one of the very few people who's actually got the fuck you money who says fuck you like just tells everybody right down the barrel what he thinks <laughs> yeah he's the man um and i you know i like i like what he said about gunlock and like gunlock said he didn't want to be in china and charlie was like fine i don't want to be in russia like i, I don't agree but i get it um you know, I, I don't know. I, I really, I think a lot of his comments on China, look, I, I think like when you look at what's going on with the Uyghurs, it's, I, I wish that he would speak out on that. And I, and I wish that a reporter would press him and give him the ability to, to speak out on that. And I suspect what he would say is that's a really big tragedy and the benefits of their system outweigh even that cost, which is probably really offensive for me to even hypothesize that he would say, but um there's you know, a, that that's like a cold calculus to all this. In some, yeah, he's sometimes. so fucking rational. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think he would just be like, I understand that that's very offensive. I understand it's terrible. These are the benefits. Therefore, I'm, I, and I, I like, I, you know, that makes me very uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I, I think he would defend his position. And that's one of the things that I've always admired about him since I've started to listen to him is the guy doesn't actually care what other people think and he's not doing it in a rude way. He's doing it in like a first principle. This is how I see the world way. Uh, I don't know. You see how a guy like Buffett would, would get a lot of value out of somebody like him. He does like the totalitarian regimes. Yeah, he does. I mean, I think billionaires probably, I think business. billionaires probably do on average. Yeah. I mean, you, you study enough human folly and you probably think that there are ways to fix that in a kind of patriarchal manner. And it's probably hard not to feel like he knows what some of the right answers are. Right. Yeah. To improve yeah, like I think he probably would fancy himself a pretty good G. Yeah. Or Lee Kuan Yew maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I live where I live. <laughs> Florida specifically or I'll I'll take the U S despite some of our problems. What about you, JT? What'd you say? Um, I mean, in general, I enjoyed it. It made me super excited for Berkshire this year. Um, a couple of funny zingers in there about like, we've already had digital currency for a long time. It's called a bank account. Uh, the other one that made me laugh was, um, his, like you probably don't want all of your, I don't know if you said the age, young men or 20 year olds spending 40 hours a week being a machine gunner on TV, <laughs> basically playing video yeah. games. <laughs> uh, what else was good in there? 
his comments about envy, I think were spot on and that like how much of that drives human behavior for the worse. So, you know, don't be a living ostentatious life and keep your, keep your, <clears throat> your consumption patterns in check and you'll probably lead a happier life. That said, I'm almost certain he drives a Bentley and he's always had nice stuff. So there's, there's a but relative to his net worth was. Pretty, yeah. Well, and I honestly right? don't care. I, th- I think a lot of this like live cheap and meager and stuff. I mean, I- I'm not sure that I buy all that. Uh, I think you got one life to live. You might as well enjoy some of it, but I do agree with not, uh, not comparing yourself. Like once you start, in my opinion, setting your happiness, to relative outcomes, uh, that's a dangerous, dangerous path. And that's called being a human. Like it's wired into you for compare relatively, not absolutely. But yeah, he got he got a few questions which were like that people would ask a question, then he just like sort of dismiss it, and then he get it get reframed and asked again. Like that, people wanted to know like what does what does Daily Journal co hold? Like what's it got overseas? What's it got? Um, on margin and he just said we disclose everything we have to and we're not going to tell you anything else yeah what do you think i also like when he was like uh well they, they asked him about secession planning which is like clearly a valid question he's like well we got something to, we got we got to get on some work to do 97 he's 88 <laughs> or whatever i do uh shout out to becky i think she does such a good job in handling those guys yeah. she really is able to she has pretty Good I thought they were good questions, good follow-ups. That's yeah. not easy to do with those guys. Yeah. She didn't let him off the hook. I mean, she gave him a few chances to answer the question. She did eventually. I mean, there's nothing you can do really other, yeah. other than just being rude. You got to, but she did follow up a few times, which I thought was pretty good too. I kind of wish Berkshire would go. I wish it would, they would do last year's question format this year. I don't love people getting up and asking them questions. You have to submit it beforehand, or do they do they do it? They I don't you think do one so. From the floor, one from the journalist and one from an analyst, right? That's how they did it last time I was there. Yeah, and I don't think the floor questions no, need to be pre-approved or anything. But no. oh yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be like Mr. Good. Buffett. Here's my kid. Can I ask you about life? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the analyst questions aren't my favorite either. Honestly, like. Here's this long, long thing about that shows how much I know about the railroad industry. And then here's some little obscure question that no one in the crowd really cares about. To be fair, Buffett you know. knew the answer. Well, of course he knows the he answer. He had that the Chicago traffic snarl was a good one. And then he had, a, had like a five minute answer. And I was like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, he's the best. Um, JT, you want to do your, uh, want to do your veggies? Yeah, let's do it. We got... Um, so this is a good segue with, you know, talking about Buffett and Munger and they always advise us to look for anomalies, right? And, you know, he, he asks in the late nineties, he's talking uh, at one of the meetings and he says like, you know, how come these, how come business schools don't ask these kind of questions? Like number one, how did an illiterate Russian immigrant with $500 in her pocket create the largest furniture store in the entire country, right? No one's doing the research on that. How did a Bloomington, Illinois guy with no you know, large agency force, no real capital to speak of, start this mutual company, which means that he has no capitalist incentive, no stock options, no way to get rich if it really works out. And he's continually fighting this uphill battle against entrenched, entrenched competition that have super strong distribution networks. And yet, how did that he become and build the most dominant insurance company that in the late nineties at that point had like 25% market share, which was like two X the next closest competitor in what a company you guys might've heard of called state farm, right? Like where did this come from? And like, why is nobody studying these kind of crazy anomalies? So if we go looking for anomalies kind of in the natural world, my mind first starts with like, what are some harsh environments where life barely thrives? And one of the most obvious is the desert, right? There's very few animals that can adapt to such wild temperature swings. And the, the origin of the word desert comes from actually like place abandoned is the, the term like etymology of it. Uh, and yet it's like one third of the earth's surface is covered in desert. And so it, to give you a sense of some, how big the temperature swings are, the average temperature in a desert is like 
the high is like 38 degrees Celsius, which is like a hundred Fahrenheit. And the low at night is negative four Celsius, which is, uh, 25 degrees Fahrenheit. But it's, there's much more extremes that happen, obviously, like and ranging from like 49 degrees Celsius, which is like 120 Fahrenheit to negative 40 Celsius, which is like negative 40 Fahrenheit. So crazy temperature swings, very little rainfall to support life, very inhospitable. And yet we have this animal that is like perfectly adapted for this environment called the camel. And right, like they're the ships of the desert, they're supposedly called. And uh they're actually pretty remarkable creatures. They, they're very, they're much stronger than you might expect. Like they can carry 900 pounds for 25 miles a, a day. Uh, and yet they can also run like 40 miles an hour. Um, and of course they're adapted for the desert life where they have three sets of eyelids and two rows of eyelashes to keep the sand out and special fur that grows in their ears, like, like an old guy to keep, uh, <laughs> keep sand out of their ears. Uh, but so one of the things that is that helps them stand out is that they have these fat stores that and hair that help keep them cool during the day and warm at night and survive on very little water, right? And apparently a camel can drink salt water that's more salty than ocean water and is no problem with that, right? And like there's something to me that's like very stoic about the camel that is just like suffers these harsh conditions with and without really uh, complaining too much, it seems like. Um, so there are two types of camels uh, that have been domesticated. There's a third wild one, but the two are the dromedary, which has one hump. And that's like about 90% of the camel population. And then there's the Bactrian, which has two humps. And a useful way to remember those two is that if you take the letter D for dromedary and turn it on its side, that looks like one hump. And if you took take Bactrian and turn it on its side, that looks like two humps, the letter B. So that'll help you remember which one is which. Um, so what, what do you guys think is inside the camel's hump? Is it fat? It is fat. It's not water. Like you might imagine storing water there. It's fat. And um, this is like their, you know, energy reserves to store calories for very, very long stretches. Um, and actually one hypothesis of why the fat is located on the body, like in such a kind of weird way is that you know, most animals have it distributed in kind of a center of gravity way. So it's easier to carry. Um, but that also, it provides insulation as well for your organs in a, to like maintain your body heat. But if you're in such a hot environment, you act like they kind of like move the fat away from the organs so that it doesn't insulate it as much and it helps them stay cooler. Hmm. So, um, one of the things that they'll, they'll really do to conserve water is like they they don't, and especially when it gets really hot is like, they just won't work as hard. Like it's like, they just, they're just not going to do anything. Like they just sit around uh, what, what you might expect, but um, a camel can lose 19 kilograms, which is about 42 pounds and going a, like for a couple weeks without food or water. Uh, and so, and this is what's wild is when they actually find water after one of those long stretches, they can drink 130 liters of water, which is like 34 gallons in 13 minutes. So, I mean, just absolutely like <laughs> soaking in water, chugging water in a way that like you and I can't even hardly imagine. Uh, I mean, it's like two and a half gallons a, a minute of water chugging. Um, so let's see what else they have this like shaggy fur coat, which acts as a heat barrier. And it, what that does is it actually allows their, their, the set point where they start sweating to be higher because it'll insulate them a little bit from like absorbing as much heat and which will then reduce water loss. And so even though it weighs about five times as much as a human, they only use about a quarter of liter of water per hour, uh, which like, I'm sure like we would sweat much more than that in a similar. Um, and the, the secret is for the camel is that they can actually store a ton more heat internally before they start sweating. Um, so what's interesting is then like people have taken this um, kind of design that nature's come up with in camels and then created this like kind of passive cooling system using these hydrogels. So it's based on evaporation similar to the camel. So they'll take a, 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 a layer that has, it, that retains water really well and slowly re releases it. And it doesn't require any power source to make this happen. And so um, MIT actually like looked at camels and tried to figure out how do we like make this thing release in an evaporative cooling way, but in a like slower. And so what they end up doing is adding an, an aerogel layer on top that kind of mimics the camel's fur, 
that provides some insulation, but it's still porous enough for water to escape. And so it's slow. It slowly allows evaporative cooling to happen with these gels. And um, so then people like they're going to take these and and they use them for you know, keeping medicines cold for like a week. And it doesn't require any outside energy source. Uh, and then they're actually looking at trying to scale up the material science in such a way that they could put, put it into buildings so that buildings could have this kind of cooling and then like dramatically reduce the energy consumption. So um, the next kind of interesting thing is looking at a camel's nose and they have this really interesting way of actually regulating the temperature uh, through their nose. And you don't want to check this for yourself, by the way, because camels supposedly spit undigested food at people. It's called expectorating uh, as a defense mechanism. So stay away from the camel. Probably don't get up in their face. But the, the inside of a camel's nose has all these different passageways as compared to ours, which is like pretty, pretty straight shot. And what that does is then allows much more surface area. And they have this interesting like membrane inside of there that allows moisture to both humidify the air when it's coming in, which provides some evaporative cooling to the lungs, but also then on the exhalation, it absorbs the water back in. And then basically like it's a dehumidifier when they're exhaling. And then that keeps, it keeps them from losing about 70% as much of the water as you and I might lose or any other kind of mammal in that kind of breathing cycle. So um, Egyptian architects took that idea and have copied it and tried to integrate it into buildings in this little system where they let cool air in, in the, in the nighttime and they absorb it and they actually put like calcium chloride inside of it to absorb the water and like retain moisture inside of this, this box. And it's almost like the mucous membrane of the, the camel's nose. And then when it warms up during the day, that liquid gets released in kind of an evaporative cooling system. Uh, and it helps minimize the energy requirements in some buildings. So, um, you know, I'm trying to take do some of these takeaways for for a business perspective or an investing perspective, as we always try to do. And uh, honestly, there's probably like a lot more good ideas than what I came up with. I'm sure you guys will come up with stuff. But uh, that got me thinking like, OK, when marketer conditions are such where it's making you sweat, be like the camel and do less, like conserve your energy. Don't work as hard. Go take a walk. Uh, you know, it's probably not a fruitful time to be making too many decisions and changes. Uh, take it easy. Um, you know, conserve your capital like that. But when you do find an oasis in the desert, drink deeply, like 2.6 gallons per minute, I think would probably qualify in Munger's version of pouncing vigorously on an opportunity, right? Um, so, uh, you know, camels can store a lot of heat before they actually start sweating. And, I, you know, like I said, I think that's, there's something very stoic about this to me. And, so having that kind of calm internal center of gravity in your mind allows you to store a lot of the heat that comes in before you would start sweating uh, and then making bad decisions. And, and then kind of from a personal finance perspective, having that large fatty deposit on your back that's kind of stored away from your normal operations could be a good survival strategy for you. Um, you know, kind of one of those bank accounts that you put money in and sort of forget the password and don't consider it only if you needed it in a very emergency situation to help you get through a drought. Um, so anyway, there's my tortured analogies of uh, what we can learn from camels, but hopefully that scratched everyone's itch on the animal front. Uh, this, so. uh, this episode is brought to you by camelfacts.com full of your camel facts. And I've yeah. got everybody's subscription. I was hoping Bill was going to take it to the uh, you know, RJR Reynolds who owns camel. Uh, I was, cigarettes. Uh, that was the next comment. Take it away. No, no, you got it. You got it. <laughs> sponsored by tobacco. Okay. Here's my here's my question. So it's fat in the humps, right? And they suck up all of the water. But then how when they're two however long it is, two weeks down the road, or how, how many how long can they go without a drink? Yeah, like two weeks. Something like that. Is it where's the water coming from? Are they pulling it out of their belly? Do they just leave it in their belly the whole time? Or do they soak it up into their does it go into the fat? Like how does that all work? No, I, I think, I mean, for us, I think you store your water in your cytoplasm of your cells for the most part. They store so. it in your blood. Uh, yeah. I don't think, not, not. Isn't that, isn't that blood? No. I like, st stood in the cells. Yeah, like okay. literally all your cells that make you up, like there's, that's uh, the, the most common substrate of that is water. So you, I think we tap water out of our, out of our cells when we need it. Well, let me, let me segue like this. Um, is is Russia a big opportunity right now? The Russian stock market could be. <laughs> no definitive answer. 
So I saw I saw a note from uh, Cuppy, which I thought was kind of fun. Um, he says uh, basically, Russia's taken. I think Russia's taken two provinces, and he says that um, Europe doesn't want to go to war over the two provinces. The US doesn't want to go to war over two provinces. Also, there's a lot of gas that comes out of there, and so that's fertilizer and a whole lot of other things that go into food production and so on. So if we if there's a war on that front, then um, inflation's going to go bananas in the States and there's an election coming up. So it's highly unlikely that that um, goes ahead. I, I don't know whether you need to know any of that stuff or not to sort of look at the, the Russian stock market's cheap. It's always been cheap. But the question is, do you want to play something speculative like that? I mean, this, this is like, this is not an investment. This has never wind up in anything that I do, but I'm just sort of interested in, because this is value after hours, we can talk about this kind of stuff. Well, so I will say that I have owned Russian securities before, and I don't- Through current... an ETF or directly? Both. Uh, and it's, uh, you always had that overhang of, you know, kind of mafia style government and who knows what's going to happen. Is that a positive or a negative? <laughs> <laughs> well- well, I, I think other governments are kind of showing their hands a little bit lately, too, as being a little more authoritarian than everyone might have thought, um, lest we, we in glass houses throw too many stones. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always been a, is this a mispriced bet or not? It's not a, like, of course, it's cheap and it might, might be cheap for a good reason. It also might be too cheap for the, the reason. Uh, and that's sort of for you to figure out on your own. And your, and your risk tolerance. Um, so this, I mean, this is what opportunity can look like potentially. Uh, so scary headlines what, what create it? mispriced securities. What, what is the Russian stock market trade at relative to like U.S. financials and, and international energy? It's been a multi? huge discount. It's been a huge discount for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I just, that's how I would think about it is. Yeah. Because because the whole the whole business over there is commodities and financials. Like it's not going to trade at a big multiple. Yeah. So I mean, you'd be doing like Gazprom to Exxon calculations. Yeah, yeah. I think you got to comp it to something like that to figure out whether or not it's actually worth the, uh, you know, the risk discount. I remember when Meb launched his uh, GVAL. And uh, one of the things that GVAL does, I think the first screen, it's like a cape of global markets. And then he looks for something within each global market. And the, the cheapest global market at the time that he launched was Russia. And I think yeah, the cheapest when, there was a bank. I mean, I talked to him about this, so I said it to him. But I, I do think the question that you got to ask yourself is index composition. Like Russia doesn't have Silicon Valley. So it's just not going to trade. Like it, it should trade at a discount. Um, yeah, sure. the point that, but that's the point that I was making that it's, it's always been at a discount and may always trade at a discount. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess that what I, yeah, I, I guess if, if we're saying that the U S stock market is, uh, uh, like, I'm not even sure that it's a discount, uh, depending on what your definition of a discount is. I think it should trade cheaper and it's probably justifiably cheaper, uh, whether or not it's too cheap. I, I have no idea. There are some interesting stats, though, on on Cape and historical what it looks like. I wrote it up at one point, probably a couple of years ago, in one of my letters. And if you look at Cape on what it, I think below five Cape, there is no incident in the data set where you had negative ten-year returns. So, <laughs> I mean, there's like literally you'd never lost money if you. Is paid that U.S. only, or is that global? No, this was global, I think. I'm pretty sure. I'd have to go back and make sure. but Because um... I do remember that after, after GVAL came out that Russia had a very good run for a period there. It might have been the same. When, how long ago were you buying? I mean, you don't have to discuss current stuff, but how long ago were you buying Gazprom and um, whatever you were buying? Or so not, not necessarily Gazprom, like the names. I owned most of my Russian exposure was probably like 2017 to 2020-ish. Yeah, it's, I think it was maybe even a little bit earlier than that when it came out, maybe 2016 or 15, something like that. Yeah, it was That's, cheap. I mean, price to book on 
what I was buying typically was well below 50 cents on the dollar. There's this idea. You I know, saw that, that when it got closer to a dollar and happily moved along. There's this idea that you do better as an investor having, um, uh, you know, international exposure. Like everybody's got, they call it a home country bias. Everybody's got way too much in their home country. And it's easy to see the reason why, right? Every time you look overseas, every other country looks less good than, I mean, it might be by virtue of the fact that we're in the States right now, but I've done this from Australia as well. Like the States look pretty scary from Australia. <laughs> and I get that the States and Australia is not, not Russia or China. Like that's a, we're talking about different things, but it's still the idea that like, you're just never going to get comfortable with, with foreign countries. So maybe the best way to do it is like global through a global index or through a country specific index. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that can make some sense. I think that Cliff Asness has done some research on it and I, and I think that the, the point that he made was that the two points that he made, one was that you're very unlikely to be picking the stock market that performs the best. Like that you, you'd be very lucky to have your home country be the stock market that performs the best over the next decade. Like that just, it's, there are 170 in, something. Yeah. One in 200 odds or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like not, not, not good odds of picking that. And the other one is that there's a, um, <sighs> there are many stock markets that collapse and just never recover or they collapse and they stay flat for, for decades. And so, you know, Japan has been like that. Now, who would have predicted in the eighties or the early nineties that would have been the case for Japan, like virtually no nobody. But if you had that global exposure, at least you had, you Grand did have up. some exposure uh, to the U S <laughs> do you think he did? Did he? I think, I think so. If I remember right. I, I was listening to a podcast from the guy from Bailey Gifford, and he doesn't even look at like countries. He looks at regions within countries. I think that makes more sense. Hmm. Like, what would you do for that? Well, like, I mean, the Northeast is like a finance hub, right? So it should probably trade at a lower multiple than uh, like California, right? Because it's more like tech and higher ROI companies and stuff like that. Uh, hmm. And I think like throughout history, I mean, if you think about like Venice and glass blowing and stuff, there are certain there are certain uh, concentrations of groups of people that understand things better than uh, those outside of it do. And, and they share the knowledge and the knowledge compounds. Um, so I, I think that's probably like, that probably makes the most sense to drill down into. You think the internet kind of breaks that a little bit? Just the... No, not the really. Net, the networks used to be so kind of isolated and sparse compared the interconnections were slow. I mean, maybe a little, but I, I still think like, I don't know. I, I bet immersing yourself in a, in a community goes a lot further than being voyeuristic on the internet. We've got a couple of good questions here. Uh, it's just Bill Waters has an interesting point. Uh, what about the Moscow Stock Exchange? Monopoly on FX equities bonds, 80% EBITDA margin. And someone points out you got to be, you'll, you'll be a minority interest owner to Putin and many of the Russian stocks. But stock exchanges have been good businesses historically, good places to invest. Well, I hate to break it to you, but when you own a U.S. equity, you have a, a silent partner who decides on their take of the earnings as well. And it's not much different in a lot of ways. Good point. Um, is the NASDAQ collapse more to do with cheap money ending or the UK, Ukraine crisis? That's from has nothing to do with the Ukraine crisis at all. It seemed to happen before that run. <laughs> Yeah, it says nothing. To, Ukraine means nothing to the Nasdaq. Net, well, Netflix what, cratered 20, 25% because of Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'll tell you who I think knows. I think the guy to follow right now, and, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I do think it. So fuck it, I'll say it, uh, <laughs> is Andrew Friedman. I think the guy, like, from Hedge Fund or from Hedge, Hedge, Hedge Eye, he's done a great job at highlighting uh, how the acceleration of revenues and gross profit through COVID created a scenario where stocks got ahead of themselves. And he's been calling for the deceleration to create a sell-off. Uh, it's part of Hedgeye's framework. I, I, don't, uh, I don't know that much about Hedgeye, how they do things, uh, but I, I do <clears throat> talk to Andrew a little bit. And I think that um, 
I don't know if I was if I was an institution or I had actual capital, I would I would sub to his stuff because I think that he's got an interesting on one. Yeah, get it, well, get it I mean, I'd probably pay for the access. Like he called Roku perfectly, and he's been a Roku bull. Who, uh, you know, when I talked to him and Roku was up north of like 300, he, I mean, he was, he said to me, he's like, dude, it doesn't make sense to me right here. I think the risk reward is all skewed uh, to the wrong side. He got uh, to the sideline. He's ridden, he's watched it fall. Uh, like, I think he's looking for the right things to turn constructive on it again. Like, I, I think that guy understands uh, positioning in tech right now. And, you know, going back to nothing, nothing but net. I mean, I think that was a really good book. And I think that, uh, you know, growth curve initiatives, uh, revenue, gen- like I, I'm not being flippant when I say like a lot of that book is about when does revenue accelerate? Um, and, you know, tech valuation is in the eye of the beholder and stuff like that. And I think it's worth a read, if nothing else to sort of stretch the brain. But I think Andrew's got a pretty good sense of uh, how people are looking at things. At least he has recently. And I like him as a person. How about the that dislocated uh, high quality? Do you like that framework? Yeah. Yeah, I do like that. It's kind of like rhymes with what Phil Town does a little bit. Mm. What's the What's the idea? Uh, you wait for, I, I would argue Netflix is arguably a dislocated high quality uh, stock. <laughs> Facebook's probably a dislocated high quality stock. Um, you're looking for hiccups in companies that have had the ability to generate uh, substantial revenue over uh, I, I think he's looking for revenue gains over 20%. Um, you know, like even Facebook, they guided to one to or what, three to 11% <laughs> revenue. Um, I mean, if you do a three-year stack on it, which, you know, I know is getting cute, but it's still like 20% compounded. So I don't know that that's the end of the world. Yeah. That kind of revenue uh, growth will hide a lot of sins. Yeah. It'll allow you to start a metaverse. <laughs> Do whatever you want. <laughs> well. um, the, the, there are some companies out there. Yeah, yeah. I'll just leave that one alone. I was going to say Tesla, but I'll just leave Tesla alone. What do you guys think of all these consumer durable companies trading at the lowest PE since the global financial crisis? What's a consumer durable? Yeah, what's why that? don't I? Why don't we define our terms? Maytag, like dishwashers, or what's that? <laughs> I have noticed that too. Yeah, like what? Like what's a name so that I can actually look? Uh, you have to pull, pull up the category because my my <laughs> gut my gut says uh, we're coming. If you're looking at trailing multiples, we're coming off of a time when everybody stopped spending on services started spending on goods, got stimulus money, and they're way over earning. So if you're looking at a trailing multiple, you're about to get waxed. That's what my gut says. But I don't know what the actual companies are. It could be wrong. Can you pull it up? Are you pulling it up? I'm trying, but like consumer durable, I mean, we consider like staples. Is that durable? Consumer staples, yeah. Okay. Batteries, razor blades. Is that what you mean? Um. Aluminum foil. Yeah. Is it is it disintermediation through social or something like that? I don't know if that counts for that stuff, does it? I just like think a lot of it, man, is like people people just bought a ton of shit over the last two years. Like they they went from spending in restaurants to buying everything that their house ever needed that annoyed them when they couldn't like when they used to be able to escape that thing that annoyed them, they got locked inside and had to stare at it. So like they bought a lot of shit. This is part of why people pitch me on restoration hardware. And I hope y'all are right, but like, no fucking thank you. Oh, it's down 10% today. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's a couple of people out there that haven't bought couches yet, but um, I think a lot of them already bought it. Uh, so I do think a lot of these names getting hammered on the back end and missing comps. I think that's where a lot of value is. Um, that's where I would be inclined to fish. There's some serious round trips from from yeah. pre-COVID to amazing to back to post-COVID, and you didn't go anywhere if you held it that whole time. I mean, I think Roku is pretty capital, interesting. Had a list of them. All What's of that? 
the account Bucko Capital or Bucko, whatever it is, had a oh, list yeah. of them um, showing all of those round trips. Like they're all ARC, all those ARC companies that have round tripped through that. They, each one of them has exactly the same chart. I mean, like, so here's another one. Somebody asked a long time ago, like in the middle of COVID, uh, what did I think about Farfetch? And I, I still don't have a great answer, but like that stock has gotten completely wrecked. Still the same founder, still the same trends. I mean, I think that's, that's the type of stuff I think is interesting to look at. And by the way, the revenues have doubled while the stock has come down Jesus, that thing top ticked. Wow. I mean, What's it's the, down 75%. Know. Bill, that sounds a little far fetched to me. <laughs> no. What's the price sales? Uh, it's only like two and a half times. Oh, that's, well, that's getting risky. A, a little bit over that. 275. But you know, you got a growthy name. Oh, I you thought could... the decimal point was going to be in a different place. That's, that's fine at that level. Yeah. It's, you know, it's quote unquote not, you know, not profitable, but. It shouldn't be profitable, I don't think, at this stage of its company. Too early. So what's interesting? What's out there that's interesting at the moment? I don't know, man. I, I mean, I, I do think Roku is interesting, but, uh, you know, I could be wrong and I don't own it. So that's Wolf how interesting says, I think it is. What is Roku's competitive edge? Well, I mean, I do. I think that they... I think if you limit your view to U.S. like U.S. media distribution, um, I I have I have yet to figure out what Warner Discovery, Viacom, CBS, and NBCU look like in a world where Netflix and Disney pretty much dominate streaming, and I do think that they're going to dominate it because I think that the other three are going to straddle this well, we need some of our content on linear and we need some of our content on SVOD and we still want to play around with advertising supported. And they're like, you know, Discovery Warner, I, I get why people like it, but like you got Zaslav buying a huge company. He's going to create synergies by firing a ton of people. I don't think people are going to be super amped to go to work. You got to merge two apps. Meanwhile, Reed and team are just like hiring all the talent and paying them more. I mean, maybe it works because it's cheap as a stock, but like, I don't like the competitive position. And I think Roku could be an arms dealer and all that. I, I think a lot of this could end up benefiting the Roku channel. Then they add more of the ad supported, like they own more ad inventory. Some spend moves to connected TV. One thing I don't like is they say that this much, this much time is spent streaming and only this many ad dollars. Well, if Netflix is like 50% of streaming time, that's not really, your TAM is not as marketed or whatever, but um, I think the OS is real. I think it's here to stay in the US. I don't think, I think their international ambitions are hard to get a strong view on. So here's an interesting one. Uh, what about Zoom? 4% free cash flow yield guiding to 15 to 20% growth doesn't need to compound that long to be an 8% free cash flow yield. Yeah. I said a while ago. And you get uh, to be a hero. You get to be, you get to be long and short, short and then long. Yeah. I said I'd flip the curate Zoom thing. I think I said it. Uh, I actually said it before curate came out and um, and missed. I think I said it the night before. But yeah, I would flip that bet here. When's your bet run to? Uh, Twelve thirty one this year. Might have might have gotten a little cute on the time. You did <laughs> ask for the extra. Yeah, the you extra wanted that time. extra Christmas. I know. I didn't foresee all these supply was it, chain. Was problems. it Austin Liebman on the other side? You got to close that out. Yeah. Close it out and flip it. Yeah. I mean, can you? Yeah, buy, Zoom's not crazy here. Buy yours out and put it in Berkshire like Buffett <laughs> did. With yeah, I should. <laughs> yeah. You'll self-insure the the amount and put the rest in Berkshire. <laughs> somebody tagged me in the uh, the. Somebody did an update of the Chamath. Uh, Spacks, and I like uh, bloodbath. I I just liked. I I'm hoping that next year he uh, you know, because he had cited Buffett's returns in that first letter that he did, and I'd I'd kind of like to see him do it again next year. I, I think I think it's uh only What's appropriate to comp yourself to Buffett every year <laughs> if you're going to do it the first year. 
Yeah, that's true. Don't worry, someone on Twitter will. Yes, this is true. Well, the funny thing is they showed the returns and he had a tweet that said like, I'm going to fuck shit up. And then they put the returns right under and they said like mission accomplished. Oof. Ouch. That's, that's a little rough. Yeah. Fiserv got bought by a couple of value investors. Yeah. Fiserv was interesting for a little while. I don't know where it is now, but I had a little look at it. Yeah. I, that SSNC, my tech, lots of smart guys like all that stuff, but you know, I don't know anything about them and they're, I think I think they're objectively. See, that's what's hotels. holding you back. Doesn't bother me not knowing anything. <laughs> semiconductor equipment. Pro. I know nothing about semiconductor. I know it's magic. I mean, it's it's what? always cheap. They're always like filling up the screens. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I know. I mean, I I know that I should have owned Lamb Research when I read about. Uh, it was a pitch in Barron's. I think it, I was sitting in the library and we'll met. I think it was 2018. And that pitch was right. And I never got there. Like a moron. It's a question here about Amia's PLM bankruptcy settlement. I haven't followed that at all. Sorry. But I thought that Amia was an interesting company. And uh, I think it's an interesting management as well. What do they do? Uh, that's the uh, was the Canadian uh, held uh, the frequent flyer business. Oh yeah, 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 uplifting to NYC. Yeah, uh, Bill is in that Wa Buffalo or Wa Buffalo or whatever. Um, yeah, haven't seen Wa Buffalo today. Maybe he was on. Um, semis are hard. A kid I cheated us more than me and took me out of Intel. Yeah. I mean, the problem with semi-cap is I feel like I'd be like, yeah, I'm ready to buy it. And then they just like expand all this capacity. And then I'd get hurt with my first first cycle of overcapacity. And I'd be like, here I am owning a cyclical again on the wrong side of it because I didn't understand what I bought. Right back into might as yeah. well be potash, potash. That's right. Exactly what I bitched about last week. I'm like <laughs> doing the exact same thing. Just. And with a different thing, you know. Yeah, Smith and Wesson is bananas cheap, and so is Ruger. They're both uh, really. All of, there's a there's a big. I've noticed in the, a few of the screens that I run, there's a big um, there's a big vice discount going on at the moment. Mm. Anything that like falls into those things is it's just ESG. Concerns. ESG. I think. I guess so. Yeah. They they sit like, and maybe people have bought a whole lot of guns recently, and they're over earning it. That won't look uh, as healthy. What's your over under on uh, five years from now? ESG bigger or smaller? Bigger. I say really bigger. You think that's a trend that's not going away? It's political. It's not. It's not economic. I don't know. What, Bill? What do you think? Before I bias you with my ramblings. Um. I don't know. I think Vice I, will do very well. Vice I think Wall perform. Street will market it less. Uh, I think uh, I think it's here to stay, though, and I think it's here to stay for good reason. I, th- I think like companies that are doing the right, like ESG, the right way. Uh, I think is done. I think that's I think that's a secular trend. I think you know the marketing bullshit that Wall Street pumps out to get high multiples will fade and like all other things that they touch. So I'm going to, I'm going to go the other way and say that it's a, a bull market luxury and that, you know, when you're a pension fund and you're really worried about how the hell you're going to meet your liabilities because there haven't been adequate returns for a few years, you just stop. <laughs> the SG was like, Oh yeah, I remember when we did that for a while. But like we got to get some returns here, otherwise all of our numbers are messed up. And if it means I got to go buy some gun stocks or tobacco stocks or whatever, then all right, I guess that's what we're doing. Yeah. Well, what is? I mean, what's the definition of ESG? Like, you know, I I, I guess like Swedish Match, uh, they make nicotine pouches. Like, I don't know, is nicotine really not ESG? Like, I I mean. I don't know that we're against drugs as a society. I think we're against cancer. 
So, you know, like I'm against the bad stuff and I'm for the good stuff, just to clarify my position. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I know True Leaves gonna beat. I got a card and I bought a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> but they give a 50% discount off your purse, and I'm a value investor. So there you go. Um, but you know, like I is pot ES. I know this is crazy, right? But like is pot ESG because I can tell you since I have access to pot, my drinking has gone down an immense amount. And for me, like drinking is the one thing that I am more scared of than anything in the world. Now you could say, well, you're just self-medicating with something else. Fine. We can debate that another time. But like, so I think it's like iterations of how are you moving the world forward? I know that pot is not, I understand this stupid conversation, but I'm just saying like definitionally investing in sustainable practices, making companies less wasteful uh, and and looking out for stakeholders, I think, is something that should and will continue to grow as a uh, focus. And I think it will generate profit. I think it's, vice isn't necessarily the opposite of ESGs. I mean, I, all that stuff would be in vice, but it's not necessarily in ESGs. That's what I'm saying. I guess yeah. the social. I guess the S is social. But I don't know if that necessarily includes. I mean, the definitions, nobody's got a fixed definition, nah, but it yes. changes for every single thing. Yeah. That, and that's what I think is sort of the environment I think is pretty, I think you can get there on environmental, but you know, then it gets into like, okay, well, are we going to go all to renewable tomorrow? No. Cause like Africa needs like fossil fuels to get their standard of living up. So I, I don't know. I just think we're going to have a lot of discussion. Someone asked the question here is, is nuclear yes. good ESG or bad ESG? Like that's a good question. I think that, nuclear. Yeah. Is clearly good, but we're we're surrounded by idiots that make. But is policy. it good ESG or bad ESG? Is the question. So, like, it could be bad ESG now, but in a very short period of time, I think it could be good ESG. Depends. Yeah. On, you know, if carbon concerns you, then nuclear is really the only answer. Yeah, it's like the best answer, and people can't get their heads out of their ass. But I think it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's there's not a lot being built in the states at the moment. None. Well, it's scary, right? You're like, oh my God, what happens if we have another meltdown? And I'm guessing that uh, Germany might have wished that they wouldn't have shut all of theirs down now when they're depending on Putin's gas to keep the lights on. And whoopsies. Yeah. All right, folks, that's time. Just <laughs> on that before. happy note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay safe. Uh,